golden yeah. flu season happens every year, and they always tell you wash your hands for 20 seconds, and you never do it. Aren't able to hear the rain. Is it raining bad at your house? It's not raining bad. It's, like I can hear it. Someone, I don't think the audio can should be able to hear it because it's kind of like really off in the distance. But so you feeling okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm like it's it's like all very mild, but it is weird that it's like I feel like every hour or so the symptom changes, mm-hmm. uh, which. It could just be a cold, and I'm overthinking it, but that just seems really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the like, kind of like you're fine, and then you're not fine. Like that weird cycle back and forth is sort of indicative of. You know, you probably shouldn't be drinking a Bud Light right now, if <laughs> <laughs> even if it's not Corona. You know what? <gasps> Feel better. So <laughs> we're gonna. There's do the it. man. Sorry. <laughs> right at one o'clock. Uh... Kinda decided she had to go pee. So, oh, that's fine. Oh, you're good. I accidentally um, I let Bo out to go to the bathroom, and then I started setting up, and it started raining, and I didn't realize I never brought Bo in. So the poor man was like out in the rain by the door. I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jay, you having a good day? Yeah, it's been good. Um, I set up. There's. Have you guys heard of Zwift? Mm-mm. Zwift. Yeah. So it's like. You hook up your bike trainer to it, and then you can, like, virtually ride around, like, New York City or other cities, and it, like, records your workouts, and you can, like, see your dude. It's kind of like a video game for, like, bike training, so. um, Okay. Yeah, I got that set up, Um, but how's your guys' day? I, um, did some, I cleaned our gutters, did some weeding in the backyard. I'll probably mow once we get off of this. Look at you being all Mr. Domestic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really done anything. Jay, I know you, you've probably seen them. Ben, I know you haven't because you're not on Instagram. But I probably spent almost 45 minutes doing my little, like, count-up day of quarantine. Yeah. 23. Today, we were inspired by Taylor Swift's uh, song, Are We Out of the Woods? So, Ben, every day I, like, draw a little picture and, like, with a count, but it's all cute. Mm. So, like, today it was a picture of, like, the number 23, like, in the woods. Oh, okay. Complete with Taylor's music in the background. Did you see, uh, did you see Kona's story yesterday? No, what was her story? So, she's, like, she loves laying on her back with, like, her legs all sprawled out. And so I (laughs) took a picture of it and I posted it with, uh. The caption, paint me like one of your French bulldogs. <laughs> and then I played the Celine Dion song like, over it. My dad, so my dad stopped by this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, I asked for my old bike. And he mm-hmm. finally dropped it off today. And I'm like, that's cool. I don't know if I'm like supposed to leave the house right now. Like even mm-hmm. to go outside. So yeah. for context... I think I might have coronavirus, but uh, undetermined because you can't get tested right now. You wouldn't get tested either. Yeah. No. Like, you really uh, would only get tested if they have to admit you. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that were, like, our doctors and nurses that I was, like, around when it was still acceptable. And 
I was flying right as everyone realized how serious it was. So I'm like, mm, yeah. definitely worth it though. Trip was still worth it. Would do it again. Make the same choice. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Do you guys want to get going? Sure. Absolutely. This is the quarantine podcast. Uh, we this is inspired by being locked up in the house and being bored and just sitting around. And often when you do that, you find all this random stuff on the internet and you just dive down this rabbit hole of weird and interesting and thought provoking. And so that's kind of what we do. Uh, And this week, um, one of the things that over this past week as we were uh, all just kind of hanging out, something that Ben came across was the uh, what's kind of called the generational theory, but I'll let him introduce it. But kind of what we got for this week. Yeah, we'll see where it takes us. A short disclaimer, since we are like week three, week four of social distancing, staying at home with the the current coronavirus pandemic. If you are feeling particularly anxious, given the current environment, you might not want to listen to this episode at this point, um, because some of the things that are integral to the generational theory are crises and how a crisis forms and shapes future generations so um if you're a little bit worried about how things are going right now maybe come back to this episode if you want to listen to it uh in a few months or years or whenever you're not feeling as anxious about (laughs) the current state of things but yeah no this is not going to make anyone with high anxiety feel any better (laughs) no well maybe maybe it's hopeful in the long run in the short run you're gonna have an anxiety attack um but as Cody was talking about, there is this uh, Strauss Ho, H O W E Ho, um, generational theory that was developed by um, a couple of guys in the 1990s, I believe. I believe that was when they first published on it. So it's about a 30 year old theory. It's a theory that says that there's kind of an 80 to 100 year time cycle that. American history is operating on and that after about every 80 to 100 years we have what would be considered a major almost existential crisis uh, as a as a society and that the existential crisis precipitates social cultural economic even moral changes um, that that have a um, generationally defining nature to it. So the group that goes through and emerges out of the crisis is going to have a different set of beliefs and a different worldview than the group that comes, say, 20 years after them, and then the group that's, say, 20 years after that group, and then the group that's finally 20 years after that last group. And this has been, as talk about baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, iGen, as we've become progressively and increasingly obsessed with generational differences. So what's what's kind of interesting is that if you look back, if you do a brief timeline of American history, so 1776 is when we signed the Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution was occurring on into the 1780s, right? 
So 80 years after that, you had the Civil War, 1860s. Um, 80 years after that, we had World War II. And then 80 years after that, we are at present day, living in the midst of (laughs) COVID-19. We've had some minor crises. We had the recession 10 years ago, so that was about 70 years after World War II. So there... I guess there's at a macroscopic level, there is a little bit of a, a a cycle going on, right? Yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting, in some ways, you can also see how it might fit at a, like a worldwide level. So, if you go back to 1780, which they identify like right the American Revolution, mm-hmm. during that time period, that was also essentially the fall of the British Empire, who had mm-hmm. up to that point basically ruled the world. Um, and all of a sudden, that was no longer the case, and the world like changed dramatically because of that. Bump up eighty years to like eighteen sixty, like the Civil War. Mm-hmm. What was happening all around the globe was essentially democracy was being cemented as the sort of like governing, the way of governing, not just in the United States or in a few others, but like all throughout the globe, democracy essentially became a thing in that mid. 19th century world war ii obviously that like impacted everybody um Mm. and it really solidified like who the world powers would be for the rest of that century uh namely like russia the u.s germany china uh and then you get to our period and yeah like we've got the financial crisis that like hit all over the globe covid19 yeah Mm -hmm on a global scale you've seen like the rise in a rise in nationalism um i've i've read reports mm-hmm. that like anti-semitism is, has been rising and that's that's a bad i mean that's bad in and of itself but that's also a sign of the times right that as racial biases and prejudice rises you have like a correlation with like nationalism and nationalist views yeah um and i think a lot of that like when you think about where we're at with globalization, you know, we had the dot-com bubble in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as trade has happened overall, yes, it's made our economy grow, but there are groups that get left behind in that, right? Like it's like, oh, there's still jobs, but you have to, you know, maybe leave the place you've always lived. There's And so there's like all these factors that come into the, the growing sense of like fighting globalization and like being more isolation focused. Yeah. Yeah. Nationalism, like while it's deeply problematic, it, it really is like a, it feels like a very natural social pushback to the like radical progressive nature of the decade, like of the past, like two decades, mm-hmm. like technology booming, social booms, um, like the European Union becoming a thing. And uh, and I think like particularly in countries that are, or for people who are in a lot of power, or for countries who are in a lot of power, uh, when you start to think at a more global mindset or you start to think at a more equitable mindset, like you lose some of that power. Uh, and that's just a reality of how it works. And so I think like nationalism definitely feels like a normal pushback to... Mm-hmm that and it makes like i think it's logical to see like that con- that sort of ebb and flow between progressive and national 
culture wars. Mm-hmm. Like I think with these 80-year cycles, you can even look at it like World War II that brought us out of the recession, and then we kind of kept war going. You know, Korea, mm-hmm. Vietnam, just to continue booming the economic rise, and then there becomes a period of like, bring that back in as a country. And I think like the world kind of does these where it's like, oh, we're hyper involved with everyone. Oh, we're out of that. Oh, we're like a sine wave almost with it. Plus, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because yeah. like between World War One and World War Two, I mean that was one of the big things FDR faced was nobody wanted to get involved. Right, we threw scale. our debt on Germany and got out of there. Yeah, yeah. So like the U.S. was so resistant to entering World War Two because of their experience with World War One. All of a sudden, World War Two's done, and we're all like, "Let's get our fingers in everything." Right. Well, I think that was wasn't World War Two was really when we tried to assert ourselves as a as a global power. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's that's sort of like the interesting thing that kind of comes from that crisis. Right. Is that new global powers were essentially were established uh, mm-hmm. or at least cemented. Um, like, yes, you could argue the U.S. was like an industrial and economic power up to that point. But we were not inserting ourselves into the day to day operations of other countries like we did post World War Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. World War Two is like the the grand opportunity for u.s empiricism mm-hmm. you know where, where we we wanted to like after we had pacific based conflicts we started to take pacific territories i don't remember yeah, when prior to that we had like the philippines and stuff but yeah like our military we used to shrink it down to like 115,000 people after yeah periods of war because we felt like democracy couldn't exist with the, the presence of a large military led by the executive branch. Um, and then after World War II, because even after World War I, we bring that back in. Um, and even in World War I, we technically fought, we didn't fight with the other ally powers. Um, we had our own trenches, did our own thing. We were just fighting for democracy or whatever. And then we mm-hmm. reined it back in. And then after World War II, we became the giant machine that we've known ever since then. Like yeah. the global police even. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, the other countries did something similar. It just looks yeah. slightly different. I mean, like once the Soviet Union fell apart, they I mean, they've essentially been building that back up for the, you know, for the last couple of years uh, right. or last couple of decades. China did the same thing. They really inserted themselves all over the place, especially in Asia. Uh, and although like you don't see like, it's not like Germany's like going out and taking over things, but Germany's been a huge player in the European Union. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can almost see the European Union as Germany's sort of way of continuing to insert itself in the European area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the most recent crisis that we have had, World War Two, how that has been, like that has shaped everything about the world that we, that we live in, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can you can trace a lot of I wonder if you could trace a lot of things back to um, how decisions were made in World War Two and in the the brief aftermath of World War Two how that led to like our Soviet conflict and how the Soviet conflict led to tensions in the Middle East and how tensions in the Middle East have then affected and shaped our like our collective life as Americans right because it seems like since we were all born in the 90s, and so the U.S. has pretty much been in a conflict in the Middle East 
our entire life lifetime right so Mm -hmm. so um so in strauss ho's generational theory there are four archetypes as they call them they're the hero the artist the prophet and the nomad so um the hero generation is usually raised by protective parents and they come of age during a time of great crisis as a good hero would the uh the original hero generation would have been those born around the time of world war one um because that would have been the generation that would have fought in and then been shaping especially american culture in and in during world war ii and in the aftermath of world war ii uh the generation that follows them is the artist generation um so they're born before or during the crisis um probably not old enough to be part of the solution to whatever the great crisis that's being faced is and uh, so during their um their childhood they were very protected and grew up to become risk averse young adults in the post-crisis years probably because they they had to live and be raised during such hardship right so if you this would have been the group that would have been born um so the hero generation would have been 1901 to 1924 this is based off of a, a forbes article that was published in like 2016 i think and we can link it in the show notes um the artist the original artist generation would have been born 1925 to 1942 um and interestingly with that artist generation they would have lived through like the great depression as well you know so i know my mom's parents actually i think both of my both my mom and my dad's parents would have been from the artist generation and you can see i can trace back and see how they were risk averse very conservative you know and that was just kind of they wanted stability and safety so the next generation would be the prophet generation who live as children in a period of post-crisis affluence this would have been the group born 1943 to about 1960 so there were those are the boomers and i i can't help but think of like woodstock when you say create cultural upheaval the, the 60s and the 70s man yeah are all of our parents boomers uh my parents are boomers but they are like just boomers they're on like the back end of boomers like almost generation x mm-hmm. yeah my parents are in the in between kind of years so they share properties with both gen x and boomers yeah yeah Yeah. my parents were 60 61 yeah so your parents are almost gen x too yeah right yeah yeah so the last archetype are the nomads these are who we would know as the gen xers they're children during the awakening periods of cultural chaos so (laughs) they're children during woodstock and they see What's it? I mean, think about the Gen Xers. They would have been kids during um, fights on like women's rights, civil rights, abortion issues, drugs, you know, like the entire Woodstock culture. Um, I feel like that would have been pretty disorienting to, to have grown up during. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that's interesting about how, like, their theory around how these like generations are shaped 
is there's the piece of like how what was it like when you were growing up and really in those formative years and then there's also the piece of what was happening when you were entering adulthood um and like those two periods sort you can almost think of it as like your your, your early years your developmental years and then also though you're essentially like early 20s what was going mm-hmm. on time uh that you know first set you up but then it also like solidified what your outlook on life was going to be what your experiences were going to be what you're mm-hmm. going to be known for mm-hmm. yeah yeah and when i think of like gen xers now i think of them as being pessimistic cynical detached yeah having this like like low grade ongoing depression almost yeah they uh i mean they were like the latchkey kids right they were the kids known for either it was you know when they were kids divorce was becoming a thing that Mm. happened on a regular basis uh or both of your parents were working so Mm -hmm. um it was the first time the economy was kind of like that was a thing so they were alone a lot and then when you think about what was happening when Xers were entering adulthood, um, that would have been like Vietnam, sort of the outcome of Vietnam, right? Uh, and um, mm-hmm. the eighties, like- the 80s were a time when like the U.S. kind of felt like it was falling apart. Like crime was becoming a much more dangerous thing. Like the eighties is the decade of serial killers. Um, huh. And mm-hmm. then crime is becoming a thing. Uh, the trust of our governmental institutions was like at an all-time low uh, because of things like Vietnam and like uh, all of those. So mm. yeah, Watergate. I mean, Watergate. Yeah, so it was kind. Of, it kind of makes sense that they would end up sort of like pessimistic, at least cautious. Yeah, um, and you even think of like Clinton would have been president when a lot of them were either mid-30s to young 20s. And so you had the Clinton-Lewandowski scandal. Um, yeah. What yeah. year was that? Uh, it was what in was a second it? term. Was it early 90s or late 80s or both? It would have been late 90s because... Early 90s. Um, I'm looking it no, up. <laughs> so Clinton was president 92 to 2000. Because Bush got George H or George W got elected two thousand he was two thousand two thousand eight Obama oh eight to sixteen yeah and Clinton was a two termer so and yeah he's been during the second term yeah impeached in nineteen ninety eight okay. um, yeah so that's yeah so in some ways like that event for some Xers is happening in their early adulthood. Some of them are like into adulthood, but then and then also on the other hand, millennials. That's happening when a lot of us are kids. Um, yeah, I don't remember a thing about it because I would have been four. So the economy was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The economy early nineties, the economy boomed back. But then we then we had nine eleven, like right mm-hmm. after. You had the dot com bubble right before it, so like mm-hmm. double. Yeah, nine eleven is often described as sort of one of the like defining moments for the millennial generation and part of it i think is because at that time millennials basically um 
spanned between like first graders and people just graduating from college. So mm-hmm. you're either like in your childhood or you are like entering adulthood and then 9-11 happens. Right. Uh, and then obviously right after 9-11, the war on terror, which uh, just completely changed a lot of how a lot of things worked. Um, mm-hmm. So it's often defined. It, I've also read 9-11 as being sort of like the mo- one of the most critical events in the millennial generation's history. Mm-hmm. What are you what do you guys were like? How do you guys think 9-11 affected you? I don't think I'd ever seen adults freak out that much before. I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. And I remember we watched it in school. Yep. And then we watched it at home. Yep. Um, and it, at least for a fourth grader, I know like the 24-hour news cycle was already a thing by this point. Um, but like I had never engaged in a 24-hour news cycle. Uh, and I think that was one of the first times that I had um, as mm-hmm. a kid. Yeah, I remember. So we went to D.C. two months before 9-11. Um, and like I remember going through the airport. I remember like we got to tour the White House and like how easy that stuff was. And then we went to Disney a month after. And like <laughs> seeing the difference in that, seeing the how my family was reacting to that. I, I remember, yeah, kind of the uneasiness. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, following with the with the theory and with the the timeline, uh, millennials are going to be the next heroes. So, we all need to get ready to don our Superman capes or our bat suits and save the day. Do you guys think? coronavirus or COVID-19 is the crisis? You can't say that like we've ever experienced anything like coronavirus like in our lifetime just in terms of something being something so worldwide spread impacting daily life having such an instantaneous hit economically, socially it's hard to imagine that like life's going to go right back to normal. Like I don't think that's true. In some ways, though, there's also like this idea of like things were like things were also happening leading up to coronavirus that were almost like a tea kettle waiting to pop. Um, like what? Uh, you had like the um, financial crash ten years ago that definitely changed how we impact money. And although like some would say like the economy is better, I think one of the things that came from that was like you also have this the the gig economy came from that. Uh, people working multiple jobs became like a really big thing following that crisis. Um, and I think people, ju- the separation between like what it means to be rich and poor, not just in America, but also like worldwide, like we're experiencing these issues. You have the whole nationalism thing. Um, you had growing tensions between like progressivism and nationalism, like they were growing more extreme. And again, not just in the US, but all over the place. Um, and technology like has constantly been changing. You know, there's a lot of things already like growing and changing, but a crisis can sort of act as a catalyst maybe for a lot of the things that were already happening mm-hmm. and sort of cement them into reality. So I definitely think it counts as a crisis for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a crisis, but is it is it an existential crisis for for society 
I think this is like the big moment because you look at like a you know the twenty to twenty two years of each. You look at you know for millennials, nine eleven hits. Like Cody said, you're either entering the workforce or you're a kid, and then um, the financial crisis of the late two thousands um, is when the rest of us are in the workforce. Um, you see where millennials don't invest the stock market as much. Um, we bounce around more from jobs. We travel more, eat out more than any other generation. So we're more cash heavy, but we use that cash for experiences. Um, mm -hmm. and then now we're in this moment where we're seeing a lot of industries where traditional like job hoppers could be or people not or freelancers. Some of them are, are hurting from this. So I think it'll be, this will be kind of the, the pivot. What, what, what do you think will change? I mean, we know now that we can do more with technology than we previously thought, right? So I think I'm not going to be surprised if working from home and actually working from home, not just the like, oh, I'm going to work from home and you're only going to do two hours of stuff. Like, yeah. I wonder, if, I, I'm not going to be surprised if that's more of a thing. If you take st uh, the, the generational theory, the idea is we're, you know, here generations, we're supposed to go through this crisis and we're supposed to come out sort of like, louder stronger and on top and in some ways almost usurp leadership from the generation ahead of us because their lack of leadership they're mm -hmm. just be just because of like how we've experienced things and where we at in life when things happen i mean maybe you see like our government gets like significantly younger as like more millennials jump into positions earlier i don't know now that i'm thinking about it it just feels super early in it in the crisis to call like what the outcome is going to be. I think we're also ready to get out of our house that we think it's a lot closer to the end. We're not going to know until we actually all get out of our houses again. Or even just like, what does consumer behavior look like? Do you think people are going to be willing to rush back into like going to concerts, going to sporting events, going to the mall? Like, oh, I'm going to sit elbow to elbow with all these people and like use this nasty bathroom. Like, Hopefully things get cleaner because <laughs> I think yeah. the I think that people have not taken basic hygiene seriously for far too long. Oh, that's been um, cool to learn about too. Like people you know, and they're like, "Hey, do you know you're supposed to wash your hand for 20 seconds?" And you're like, "You nasty." Like, yeah. Where have you Where have you been? Right. Like, cold and yeah, flu season happens every year, and they always tell you wash your hands for 20 seconds, and you never do it. Like when when the coronavirus was becoming a thing, I saw a dude at work walk out of the bathroom without washing his hands or no he just got his hands wet he just put yeah. water on his hands i was like what is your problem bro <laughs> like this but is like, getting disgusting yeah but like for most of us the um the trade-off was something we were willing to take so there's this yeah. really there's this really interesting study um where there's this like large school in china and they were having this massive problem where parents weren't coming to pick up their kids until really really late and so what they decided to do was they were going to charge people by the hour if they picked up their kids late and it actually had the opposite effect more kids stayed late because parents decided that what they were doing was worth the x amount of money they had to pay to keep their child at, and to like not pick up their child and have those extra hours to do stay at work late do whatever Right, uh, and if the flu getting the flu means you take a day or two off work and you don't feel good at home for a little bit, but you end up just like watching Netflix, if that's my consequence, then I'll save some time in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. 
Like, that's how the thinking can go. Right. Well, you don't expect the flu to kill you. Yeah. To just, like, to just take it to the nth degree. Like, you're like, the flu's not going to kill me, by and large. I mean, the flu kills a lot of people every year, but it's the, it's the sick, the elderly, the really, really young, the immune compromised, you know? And mm. the coronavirus has had, even if it's still targeting predominantly people with comorbidities, it still does have a wider reaching effect, it seems, than the flu. Mm-hmm. It seems, you know, in terms of who gets sick and who gets severely sick. Yeah, and the way they, like, marketed it as, like, you know, it's really just going to kill the elderly people. And you see our generation being like, F it, I'll still go to the park. Like, and now the we're starting to see more individual cases, um, which can be politicized against, like, so there's, like, the balance, right, of, you know, you see all the numbers versus, like, we're going to write about this really sad case. Um to like put a, a face to the COVID-19. Um, so that's tough. And then yeah, there's like that otherness. It's like, well, you know, in my small town, only one person has it. So like, I don't live in New York City. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm gonna keep acting stupid. <laughs> tough. Yeah. Oh, that was a poorly timed cough. <laughs> Guys, it's I'm okay, not- Cody. Uh, you want limes with that what's up you want limes with that uh yes please (laughs) you want limes thank you um cody you kind of talked about you didn't know if they'd go more progressive or conservative um in terms of like you know there's the universal health care or there's like the conservative path towards things is there a place where both can coexist in a sense of like we're gonna fight for universal health care because it seems like a more united front fighting global pandemics like those progressive choices could create more conservative stable jobs is there a world for that coexists in your mind or yeah i mean i think like so the last the last hero generation was the gi generation right the the folks who fought through world war well like they were born during the great depression or like they were children during that time they mm-hmm. fought World War II, they came back, um, and then had to, like, redefine, like, the nation and the country. If that's your last hero generation, and you look at what did that generation do in our history of the United States, I think, like, one of the things that was really particular about the GI group was that they had a very, like, big vision of what they wanted the U.S. to look like, and then they enacted that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't what... Like, that didn't always go well, per se. Obviously, like, we know now what being a global power, like, where that led us at some points. Um, and we know now that, like, a lot of the uh, the way that that generation changed the U.S. was still, like, steeped in a lot of problematic ideas, um, like, right, like racism and redlining and all of that. But I think the idea... It, it doesn't seem per se like they were more progressive or conservative per se. It was more like they just got shit done. Yeah. Um, and so I think maybe one way to think about like, what is it going to look like for millennials to like come out of this in some sense, you get, there's like a little bit of rebuilding that has to happen. And then mm. maybe it's, it's not going to be as much about like being progressive or conservative. It's just going to be about like getting stuff done and defining like what it's going to look like. 
And I think what's interesting about that, that point you're making, um, is like millennials are widely considered to have low engagement in their jobs, low job satisfaction. And that's part of the reason why we jump from job to job to job. And I wonder if like you see that started to have an impact in our involvement in the workplace where we're just like, screw it, we're going to, we're going to get shit done and we're going to take responsibility and take ownership for stuff. And we're not really going to care about the, the system that is already in place or, you know, like the, the corporate ladder, so to say, we're just going to say, forget about it. We're just going to do it. Yeah. And I think you've kind of seen that start with like the startup culture and yeah, we want to be, have a, want to feel connected to our work. And I think like small business is a way that a lot of people can do that. And I think politically, like, you know, the, the three people now that could become president are what, like 73, 77 and 78. So it's Mm -hmm. like pretty old. And then you look at, you know, the democratic primary and it was, you have, you know, mayor Pete, who's late thirties. And then you have a lot of elder people. And it's like, where is anyone in between in that? And I think there is a place where our generation can now be like, you know what? I started Uber and Twitter and like all these things without, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. I'm just going to, that's going to roll into government. It's going to roll into healthcare um, policy just based on like, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think it could be a good place to like escape like the, I just have to shout um, people down because I don't know what to do. Um, it'll allow us to just be like, I'm going to be get past that and then just start doing. I don't think we can talk about this without addressing the fact that it's like somewhat controversial. And I saw your note on Steve Bannon and I think that deserves at least. Yeah. So the two, the two controversies that I see with this one, okay. What about world war one? Because world war one was the first world war. Right. And it also coincided with the Spanish flu, which we're, we're going through the coronavirus. The coronavirus is very severe, but the coronavirus is like child's play compared to the Spanish flu. There were uh, reports of healthy adult men like our age, you know, mid to late 20s, who were dying within 36 hours of contracting the Spanish flu because of how severe it was. So uh, I, think it had, I think it had more of like a 10% fatality rate maybe i'm confusing it with another with another thing but it was it was some serious stuff um one thing that i heard was that the spanish flu killed 195,000 americans in the month of october one year so that's you know that's appreciable so it's interesting that with with the crises that we that we mentioned the american revolution and revolutions across Europe, the American Civil War, and um, democratization, if that's how you say that word, democratization, uh, in in Europe uh, in the 1800s. 1940 was World War II, and then now we're, you know, wherever we are, uh, either in the midst of or at, this, at the beginning of a crisis. Yeah. Why do we skip over World War One? I? I think there's a couple of reasons. Okay. One, World War One and World War Two realistically happened so close together from a historical standpoint um, that I think there's a lot of overlap for 
like there's a lot of overlap in the people who were dealing with World War One and then dealt with World War Two. Full. I also think World War One. It's not to say World War One wasn't a crisis. It was a crisis. Um, but I think one of the things that the generational theory is what makes it somewhat interesting is that it's not just about the crisis, but it's about these four cycles of these generations and when a crisis happens and how it's handled and who's, who are the ones handling it and who are the ones experiencing it? Who are the ones growing up? Who are the ones who have to grow up after it? And so I think like, it's not necessarily that world war one wasn't a crisis. I think it was. Well, and that would have created kind of a vacuum in society that would have allowed for the, um, the the GI generation, um, the people who fought in World War II, that would have created a gap. If you have so many people who have just been lost, right, then that would have created a gap that would have allowed for um, the GI generation to have like stepped into more influence and into more power at a younger age. You yeah. Know? But Steve Bannon... Steve. So he. Who Steve is Bannon, Steve Bannon? So if you don't remember, Steve Bannon was a early supporter and uh, early staff member in the White House with Donald Trump, and worked very high. He wasn't his campaign manager, was he? He just worked. He was like an advisor. Um, but. He served as White House chief strategist in the administration during the first seven months of his term. There you go. He's got um, a lot of tenure with Trump. Yes. Now, they ended up having a falling out. But what makes Steve Bannon particularly controversial, beyond the fact that he's just associated with Trump, is that he has a lot of conspiracy theory, white nationalist sort of views. And that's sort of the crowd he's in. Um, and so like that really put like paints a very negative picture of like who Steve Bannon is and all of those things are true. Like, I mean, it's like, those aren't questions. It's like, yes, he's like very much a white nationalist. He's super into conspiracy theories. Um, I mean, if he wasn't so just blacklisted, Sean Hannity would probably have, have him on the show every fucking week. Is it, uh, didn't Bannon start Breitbart News? Am I getting him confused with someone? Yeah, it was the one who started Breitbart News, or at least he definitely let he was one of the guys who started it and yeah. let it some time. That's what he was doing before Trump brought him on to his campaign. Yeah. But he yeah. started as an investment banker and then did investment banking in media and then got into media. So it's kind of like a wild. So mm-hmm. so Steve Bannon is obsessed with with this theory and his movie Generation Zero was heavily playing off of the Strauss-Howe generational theory. Why is Steve Bannon obsessed with this theory? So I I think Steve Bannon is obsessed with this theory because one way that you could look at this is that the crisis that he saw coming, um... I think Steve Bannon saw something more of a crisis that was going to be more of a like social crisis um, that was going to essentially create a new social order. And I think especially when you think about the things that Steve Bannon cared about, 
like you're thinking about like oh so he means like a race war is kind of like where he was going i don't think he ever used those words but like that's kind of where like his mind went um it would seem and so steve bannon would use this theory to almost um justify um a lot of like the popping up of like nationalistic racist bullshit that he was supporting and that like Breitbart was fueling and that Trump was fueling. Now, in terms of like where this, th- I, I think it's really interesting that this theory becomes controversial when Steve Bannon supports it. And to me, it kind of, I'm wondering if it's like a chicken or an egg thing. Like, is the theory really that controversial? Like it's a, is it, controversial on its own or is it controversial because steve bannon came took it and used it as a justification for white nationalism i lean towards the latter Mm -hmm. but i think like from that a really good critique which is why how does this make any fucking sense which is like there's no like what scientific social scientific basis is there for the idea that four generations cycle through and like in in that sort of thing. And I think like, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is this all just like circumstantial evidence that, and stuff that you can kind of like create a narrative for. And then like, it sounds cool. So let's go for it. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to dig deep into like history to try to, determine like are we actually seeing something real or is this just the past 80 100 years of american history have looked this way and i'm i'm definitely sold that the past 80 to 100 years of american history have looked this way and it provides well, Strauss- a nice synopsis of that strauss and Howe extended this back all the way to the the american revolution okay. and i believe even before that i think it goes a lot yeah back even further like okay. maybe to like the 14th century, I think. Um, so they they extended it all the way. They've extended it back. I think one question is, and, and I think it's related to the your World War One question, which is like, do you just it, did the theory come first, and then you just fit the pieces to your theory, or did you have the evidence first, and from that evidence you kind of came up with this theory? Um, I think it makes sense that based off of certain life events, certain groups of people tend to act overall, like as a group in a particular way, which then impacts how future generations behave. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think agree. it's provable, but that's why it's a theory. Well, we're all going to be influenced and shaped by the environment that we grow up in. And so I think it does make sense. And what you see as a kid, like circling back to our conversation about 9-11, what you see as a kid is going to influence your view on life, your view on reality. If you don't think that you can be safe as a kid, then you're not going to, it's going to affect how you view safety and security when you're an adult and your relationship with those types of things. So I think that you can definitely point out and say they're, they're cultural or environmental or social influences, but yeah. I don't know. Is it really like a cyclical thing? That's like, is this what leads to 
like do we create our own crises because of how how we keep cycling through these generations you know because mm. you could almost take the theory to that point that that we're we're creating crises for ourselves jay what do you think yeah i mean i think it's a good tool um i need to read more in the history to see if they noticed that crises were kind of happening or if they created a theory and then tried to prove it um I could see, you know, you can make the argument, like everyone always says, oh, history repeats itself. And it's like, you're kind of, you know, 80 years, it's like, you know, I don't know too many people left that have influenced my life from like the hero generation, right? So then like, there's going to be something that comes up. Like I could see how you could argue that point, but um, I think it's like a, nice tool to look at something i think when it becomes gospel that's when it becomes an issue um so mm. yeah. it's definitely cute right like you oh, can't yeah. you can't use it to be like we should act like complete idiots like right yeah but, it's definitely fun to talk about i mean yeah. we've spent an hour dicking around on it so my job dicking around so, a word of warning, Steve Bannon supports this theory, so if that uh, scares you at all, then... Then, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, 90s kid nostalgia. My question, what 90s thing would you want to help get to help you get through the impending existential threat that we're going to face, if we indeed are going to, to face an existential threat? Cody, right. would yours be... Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy. Like that has been working so far. It will continue. Love it. I'll sit there on my ventilator playing the game. It'll be great. Um, I think, yeah, like, as the hero generation, right, we had all these... You look at all the media that we had growing up, and it was about, like, these heroes. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think i uh, going to do some Harry Potter binging. Get plugged up. Let's go. I you like know, it. Here he is. He's like 17, 18 or whatever. And he's like, ah, I'm going to go kill this guy. Right thing to do. Just dropping out of school. That reminds me. I had a another idea for a podcast I had was um, during this, like while we're all like quarantined, going back through watching the entire Marvel universe. Yep. And then basically doing like review, like, podcast reviews you would probably enjoy uh rewatchables it's a podcast where they just watch old movies and then talk about like the performance what's aged the worst what's aged the best uh yeah ben mine's gonna be um 90s sports highlights as we don't have sports going on right now Ooh, that so they've been replaying some good ones i uh i've watched a video the other day of when MJ and a young Kobe played. Mm. That was that was good. That was some good stuff. So that'll probably be. And I think I watched like Michael Jordan's top ten career plays video. Oh yeah, that was that was pretty good. Um, they've been playing a lot of like Peyton Manning, um, 
games on like NBCSN. NBCSN has been playing all their like Sunday night football games, but maybe tonight they'll play like Kentucky. I, know, I think it was a couple weeks ago they played Kentucky Duke, but like they should play some classic Final Four games tonight since we don't have. Oh it. yeah. Did I ever hey. tell you guys I was um I was born during that? Oh shoot! I think it was Duke Kentucky. Christian Leitner. 1992 Final Four, like the the shot, like the last minute shot. Christian Leitner, pass from Grant Hill. Leitner going 10 for 10 from the line and from the field for 30 points. I was born during that during that game. Wow. Good That's job, cool. Cody. My you mom screwed. knows because they turned the TV on while she was in labor because the doctor apparently was from Duke. Mm. And my dad was actually apparently the one who suggested it because it was take apparently he thought this was all taking too long and he was getting bored. <laughs> your dad's your dad's awesome. <laughs> who would have been in this year's final four? Mm. Rip. RIP final four. RIP the entire NCAA. I'm going Kansas. I don't think Dayton would have made it. I think Dayton would have gotten bounced. I, I'll say Michigan State because they always seem to find their way into the Final Four. I'll go. I'll give it to Gonzaga and Baylor. Ooh, Baylor! Two Big Twelve. Yeah. Love it. I think I think two Big Twelve teams. Yeah. Who do you think, Jay? Yeah, I was trying not to go so blue bloods, but it's that's the easiest way to do it, right? Um, yeah, it's such a hard year. I would have said, yeah, like a Michigan State or Wisconsin out of the Big Ten. Um, probably Kansas. I'm going Gonzaga. Um, and I'll go Seton Hall. You think? Shout out, you think shout that... out Let's go. <laughs> but, didn't didn't they have a who's that guard they have? They had a stud. Um, yeah, I forget. He was like a senior, but he could just yeah. perform. I would have loved to see Dayton. Um, shout out if you ever like want to find pretty decent flights. Dayton's pretty good. If I mean, Indy Airport's great, but Dayton yeah. has some cheap flights from time to time. So, <laughs> Since I know nothing about sports, I will go with this article in USA Today published by Scott Gleason. He suggests that it would have been Dayton, Oregon, hmm. and then Kansas, FSU. I like it. And then the championship would have been and this seems controversial, but the championship would have been Kansas and Dayton. Dun dun dun. That would have been Kansas wild. Upstart up Flyers versus Bill Self and Kansas and all they're embroiled with. Battle of the Midwest. Oh, if yeah. you guys want to have some fun, this is not related to sports. Um I found these videos on YouTube of Owen Wilson saying wow chronologically from all of his movies from like the 90s to the 2010s and then those lakes. there's also um matthew mcconaughey saying all right all right <laughs> all right oh you're gonna do that all right all right all right all right all right all right <laughs> i'll send them to you it'll be it's it's worth a good laugh there's also keanu reeves saying whoa but i don't i don't watch enough keanu reeves to understand keanu- it his face looks weird to me. It's because he's been out of the Matrix. It's <laughs> like, like I've seen the truth. <laughs> What's that? That moment when you realize that the Matrix series is based off of a 
Cartesian skepticism. The whole Brandon and Bat theory was established by Descartes back in the... Aren't his philosophies, like, deeply problematic? I feel like I don't know much about him. I feel like I've heard a lot of people describe him as problematic. <laughs> he was... I mean, he was actually a Christian. That might be why I hear people describe him as problematic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, he, he was just, like... I mean, we get skepticism in the whole world of skepticism from Descartes. Like, how do I know who I am? How do I know what I am? How do I know anything outside of myself? How do I know anything other than deductive reasoning? And that's where we get, I think, therefore I am. Did Descartes have anything related to Nietzsche? Because Nietzsche is definitely problematic. Nietzsche is super problematic. But Nietzsche, I don't know, Nietzsche probably had, he was probably influenced by Cartesian philosophy. I bet he was. But... Nietzsche, ah, that was something I thought about. I almost thought about ripping oh. Nietzsche into this conversation, but I don't remember. God, how we I are to do talking it. Nietzsche. Was it Nietzsche who was the the struggle of classes, or is that Marx? That's Marx. We're not talking about Nietzsche. Why not? <laughs> but and with that, I'm signing us off because we're not talking about Nietzsche. Why aren't we talking about Nietzsche? No Nietzsche. Why not? Because he's a dick.